Mai. Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. Faith, love, rejection and loss. They're very much a part of life, aren't they? But how to cope when those experiences come almost at once? We'll find out when I'm joined later by Adam and Cathy Thomas with a story that's by turns challenging, inspiring and very moving. And as the search for a new bishop for the island continues, we take a look at another aspect of the process. Our music today comes from John Michael Talbot, a musician who's recorded almost 60 albums of Christian hymns and worship songs and who lives a monastic life in the United States. And praise to our God, who alone gives life to our day. Many are the blessings He bears to those who trust in His way. Glory and praise to our God, who alone gives life to our And sons of him who build the valleys and plains. Praise the wonders our God has done in every heart that sees. Glory and praise to our God, who alone gives life to our us like gold that's tested in fire. Though the power of sin prevail, our God is there to save. Glory and praise to our God, who alone gives life to our John Michael Talbot and glory and praise to our God. There'll be more from John Michael Talbot a little later in the programme. A couple of weeks ago, Stephen Knott visited the island as part of the process to choose a successor for Bishop Peter, someone who will be the next Bishop of Soder and Man and lead the Anglican Church on the island. 
Stephen is the Archbishop of Canterbury's appointment secretary and, as the appointment of new bishops is a collaboration between the Church of England and the UK government, Stephen works closely with the Prime Minister's appointment secretary and they will both work with members of our locally formed Vacancy in Sea Committee who have already drawn up a statement of needs, their recommendations on the type of person who would fit the ministry of a bishop for our island. But to find out more about the purpose of his time here and what are the next steps in the process, let's hear now from the Archbishop's Appointment Secretary himself, Stephen Knott. This wasn't actually Stephen's first visit to the island, although, to be fair, he couldn't really be expected to remember much about that earlier trip. I was very small because I grew up in Northern Ireland and I used to watch the ferry go past uh, up and down Belfast Lock, bringing people to the island on various trips and things. And my parents actually brought me here when I was very small. But I don't remember it, if I'm honest. So it's been really great coming back and and rediscovering all the places that uh, I'd been to as a child. You're here on a fact-finding mission. You're here to establish the kind of person who might be well-suited to being the next Bishop of Sodran Man. We tend to think, because we're needing a new bishop, that your job is exclusively dealing with the appointment of bishops. But it isn't, is it? Really, I deal with all the crown appointments, so all the officers in the church that ultimately need to go to the king to be appointed. That tends to mean the diocesan bishops of the church. It can mean the suffragan bishops, which is the kind of assistant bishops in each diocese, and also the cathedral deacons. But anything that's really got a crown patronage uh, at a senior level comes across my desk. So it's very busy, and it's never been so busy, in fact. The most crown nominations commissions that ultimately will, in this case, appoint the next Bishop of Sodor and Man, the most of those we've ever done in a year is four, uh, and this year we'll do five, and uh, next year we'll do six. So there's a lot going on. Is this reflecting that, that people are moving around more quickly or that we need more people? I think it's both, really, and there are lots of things. I think it's just some people are coming to their retirement age. To be a bishop in the church, unless you're extended, you have to retire at 70. So I think we've just hit a particular time when there are lots of people moving on. And, of course, once you fill one vacancy, you tend to open up another one. But it's certainly very busy. But a real joy of the role is to get out and to come and visit communities and come and visit dioceses. And it's been a real joy being here in Soda and Man, just to seeing all the great things that are happening in the church in the diocese. Well, I guess it's a little more than fact-finding, isn't it? Because you've got to get a depth to get a feel for the place, the kind of people, the needs of, of the ministry. But on the other side of it, do you have to get to know the potential candidates? There are two things going on in parallel here. So the diocese, through their vacancy and C committee, and that's just a name for the committee that's in the diocese, that's um, discerning what they think is needed in the next bishop. Running in parallel with that process is this consultation process I'm engaged in, and that's about listening to as broad a range of views and perspectives from people inside the church, outside the church, people in civic life. I was in Tinwall this morning. I talked to a group of young people before coming to carry this public meeting. And over the course of those conversations, you start to get a sense of what kind of person um, the diocese and the people that I'm talking to could be being called to this ministry. So already in my mind, I'm starting to think, ah, yes, what about X or what about Y or what about A, B, C? And I suppose ultimately uh, my role is to help the diocese and to help those that are elected to represent the diocese on the Crown Nominations Commission. 
my role is really to help them as search agents uh, and that can use all the information that we've found out as part of this consultation process and to help them to search out and to find that person. So yes, a lot of the, a, a significant part of the role is to help the diocese find the person, uh, the particular individual um, that may be being called to be the next bishop here. Now, I know this isn't a quick process at all, but what is the next stage now after this consultation that you've been doing? I'll take away everything that I've heard. And again, that parallel process is ongoing. So the diocese will sign off their statement of needs, as it's called. The consultation process will end. I will then write a report, which will be given to the Crown Nominations Commission, which uh, consists of the Archbishops of York and Canterbury. Six people elected from the diocese, from the Vacancy and Sea Committee, six people from the National Church, from General Synod, and the two appointment secretaries. So myself as the Archbishop's appointment secretary and the Prime Minister's appointment secretary. So all the information that we gather will be brought to that group of people. uh, And that will also include a draft role profile which will distill down, again, all the themes that we have heard, like today at this public meeting. Um, And then, effectively, as I said, we become search agents and we start to search the person out. So we spend a lot of time listening. We then refine and put together the role profile, having done all that listening. And then we start to search that person out. Uh, People are long-listed, then they're short-listed, and then interviews happen and ultimately a nomination is made. So a very gradual, a very thorough process. It's not just about the capabilities of a person to be bishop on this island. All bishops take up national roles, don't they? And sometimes international roles. Exactly. So you're looking for a broad base of skills, aren't you, really? Yes, very much so. And every diocese is unique and every diocese is different. The next bishop of Soda and Man will have a role in the Tinwald. You know, they will have a role in the House of Bishops of the Church of England. So, you know, international responsibilities as well. So it is a really important role. And we're looking for some someone that will really celebrate all that is good here, but push everything forward and to push the church's mission forward for this next chapter and this next season. Do you feel a great sense of satisfaction when you're seeing a bishop being enthroned when you get to the end of the process? Yes, very much so, because a huge pleasure and a real privilege for me in doing this role is that sense of journeying alongside people and supporting people and guiding them. And so, you know, you get to know people, you you make friends along the way, you get to know communities, you get to see the very best of what the church is doing. It's about aligning all those wonderful and those great things in an appointment. And when you see all those things aligning, it's a real privilege and a real joy to be part of that and to find someone that will really bring yes really great leadership to this context and a person that's really feeling called to serve the church in the diocese of soda and man so that's a real privilege i the lord of sea and sky i have heard my people cry all who dwell in dark and sin my hand will say I who made the stars of night I will make their darkness bright Who will bear my light to them Whom shall I send I have heard you call 
John Michael Talbot again, and a great hymn of service, Here I Am, Lord. And before that, you heard from the Archbishop of Canterbury's appointment secretary, Stephen Knott, in a conversation I recorded with him during a recent visit when he hosted two open meetings in Kirkmichael and Balasala, when members of the public were invited to share their views on the next Bishop of Sodran Man. And now, as we say, for something completely different. It's time to meet my next guests, husband and wife, Adam and Kathy Thomas. Adam and Kathy were both raised in Roman Catholic households. As a young man, Adam was so deeply committed to his Roman Catholic faith that when we take up this story, Adam is training for ordination as a Roman Catholic priest. Yes, I was. I joined the Holy Ghost Fathers, as, as they were known then, the Spiritans, as they're known now. It's the second largest order within the Roman Catholic Church, um, a missionary order. And um, I became what was known as a postulant with them, working in Lancashire, but then looking to train either at the Mill Hill Institute in London or more probably in Rome. That was the plan. And I loved every minute of living within community and uh, the work that we did. A lot of it uh, retreat work, actually, with young people. So what changed for you? I met Cathy. I still felt called by God to, to be a priest, but I'd also fallen in love. And so I had to make that choice. And that's very difficult, very difficult for everybody involved, difficult for families especially. There's an expectation of, of what you're doing. For Kathy and I, obviously it was wonderful. We were we were very much in love. But that was a diff- it was a difficult time for us. A big it was a big change, a big step change for, for us both. Mm. Faith wise, faith was important to, to both of us at that time. So to go from expecting to be a priest to then taking on the commitment of marriage. What happens if six months down the line, you know, your relationship's no longer the thing? So it was exciting, but um, but also nerve-wracking. I think many of your listeners will know that moment of 
and making that commitment because you're giving something of yourself to someone else. Kathy, yeah. if I can bring you in. So how did you work this out? We took the, this whole change in our life, this kind of cataclysmic change in our life to rethink things because I was at that point a librarian and I was running a, the school library service and took the decision then at I was 28 to become a teacher, to retrain as a teacher. So we both then, within a year of, of getting together, went back to college, university to retrain. So it kind of gave a, a new start to life. There's a little bit of a snowball effect when you're younger, you just kind of move into this and you move on to the next thing. So this gave us a real opportunity to say, what do we want from our lives? What things will fulfill us maybe took you a little bit longer to find what eventually would give that fulfillment but I think when you're in a state of change and flux then is the time to really grasp that opportunity. So coming back to you Adam obviously you stepped out of your priestly training in the Roman Catholic Church for a year when we got together I um, ran the visually impaired persons unit in Manchester Central Library which was a, was a great job covering for somebody who was on maternity leave and then I went back to university so I went to Lancaster and studied uh, religious studies and uh, did a degree over three years and then I taught religious studies at a Catholic high school and I taught uh, music at a young offenders institute at the same time interesting to see which was easier to do and I became a lay chaplain at the Young Offenders Institute as well whilst Cathy had she retrained did a PGC and then became a teacher and we got married and had our son was born Joshua and we took it in turns to look after him so Cathy took a, a break and then I, I looked after him and then faith wise was always a major part of our lives at university we were very, very fortunate to be at a ecumenical chaplaincy Lancaster's a, a renowned ecumenical chaplaincy and uh, we got heavily involved with everybody there and then Kathy got a new job as a deputy head in Salford at the time I had I'd been a freelance journalist I'd made some programs I'd written some articles and one of the things I'd campaigned against was the national lottery which was just launching I felt that there were real dangers in it a kind of tax on the poor really was my view at the time there was a journalist in the Guardian and me who seemed like we were the only people who felt that way, and all Methodists, of course. But a job came up. It was to be the lottery officer for the city of Salford to help people get <laughs> money back from the lottery. And I thought, well, Salford's one of the poorest communities, therefore that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll become the lottery officer at a time when there weren't many of them around and worked for local government, helping sports, arts groups, charities to maximise the amount of money that they could get. So what happened next? It went very well. Outside of Greenwich, uh, we got more money than anybody else per capita. And then there was a change of government and they asked for people who were involved if they would help to rearrange the lottery boards, which was fantastic. Working with developers, working with communities and trying to make a real difference, making a difference within communities. That's really hard and it takes time and you've got to work together. I was very fortunate that actually Salford Council at the time was, I think, really good at it and learnt from a lot of um, excellent people. Faith-wise, carried on with our church, the Catholic Church, became a Eucharistic minister and led music liturgy. We'd had another son by then, Jacob, and then Cathy was promoted to being head teacher quite quickly, actually. Well, no, it was four and a half years. Was it? Didn't yeah. feel like that. <laughs> I did have a maternity leave oh, in between yeah. times as well. Then there was a major project came our way. The Salford Rugby Club needed a new stadium and uh, they brought it to the local authority. Uh, members of the local authority wondered if I might be willing to help. And so I went to work for the rugby club 
officially there was their community development officer, so embedding what they did in the community there, um, a rugby league club. But what I helped to do was to bring on the stadium development, find people who were willing to fund it, and then put together an expert team, a brilliant team of consultants to design it and eventually get planning permission for it. So that's what we did. So, married to Cathy, both of them still practising their Roman Catholic faith and involving themselves actively in local parish life, yet another job change was on the horizon for Adam. I went to work for the Methodist Church in a national role, um, looking after all the Methodist um, property and revenue schemes. I became the managing director of the company that we'd set up. The people that put the money in asked if I would take that on. And we, both of us, were working really hard. So Cathy, unbelievably committed as a head teacher. We had two young children. I was working, again, many people will know this, you put in big amounts of hours. And we decided that that was great, but that we also wanted a more balance in our life. And we thought we might move to Italy and I could carry on with the work I was doing, flying back and forth. And somebody, we still don't know who, said, why don't you try the Isle of Harris? Italy or the Isle of Harris? I felt sure that Italy would win the day. But I was wrong, as Cathy now explains. Yeah, we moved to the Isle of Harris. This was in the early 2000s. And we were determined that we would try and be as much part of the community as we could be, always knowing that you're going to be an incomer or an outsider. Somebody could have moved in 300 years ago and they're still an incomer, you know, that sense of the heritage of the place. But we worked hard to make sure we were genuine and sincere in getting to know and be part of the local community. And when you're a head teacher of one of the, just the, there were three schools at that time, very small schools on the island, then you're already part of the community. Those islands are very religious islands and depending which island you're on, the you know, the next island on from Harris is the Uists and Barra. They're very Catholic islands. The island we were on was Church of Scotland and pre-Presbyterian. The school was not a faith school and I did, as I have always done in every school I've been, you are part of the community. But it became apparent that my own background of being English, female, Catholic caused a small but very vocal and powerful minority on the island a real challenge. That proved a real challenge to them. And we did endure a couple of years of... I don't know how to describe it without being too dramatic, but very, very undermining actions that made it very, very clear, you know, letters in the paper saying we should take our contamination away from the island. It was very difficult because Adam was mm-hmm. flying back to Manchester to oversee the company and I was there with the two boys who I have to say thought the Isle of Harris was heaven on earth. And I'm so pleased that that was their experience, that they lived on this beautiful, stunning island with many, many, many good, good people. But this kind of oppressive minority really tried to do their very best to make us leave. And we'd moved there, we built a house there, and that was going to be our life. And, you know, the irony being one of the things we moved there is their values are very pure in many ways. They are so not materialistic at all. You try to get somebody to do overtime to do some work on your house, they won't do it because they don't want the money. That's not important to them. They have other values. Sunday is still a very sacred, special day. 
maybe not how I would do it, but the swings are tied up on the playgrounds. You're not supposed to put your washing out, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there's some kind of purity still to that. So it was such a shame that the negative side began to overwhelm us. When I'd got there, the school, I had a, uh, an inspection and it was in special measures. They'd not been a head teacher for some time. So really it became, I am seeing this through. This is the task now. So I eventually, once the inspection had been back and all things were going very well indeed, we made the decision to move back to England. It's a bit easier for me because I was flying off on a Monday back on a Thursday. It was very hard leaving knowing what Cathy was going through. There were letters of threats and notes and all sorts of different things that we experienced while we were there. And we were engaged faith-wise with the whole community. We went to the Church of Scotland on a Sunday morning. Our house was a chapel of ease, a Catholic chapel of ease with a tabernacle, a reserved sacrament, because there was no Catholic church. So we would hold a service at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon so it didn't interfere with the other services. And then we would go to Songs of Praise, a medical event on a Sunday night. So we were involved with the Episcopal Church there too. And... We have such good friends there. So many of the people there, I mean, yeah, that are, are so close to us and, and had been so generous to us in lots of different ways. To make the decision to move was really hard, you know, heartbreaking to do it. We felt we were letting them down. We felt we were letting our friends down. We had to tell one, one couple in particular was so difficult even now I can remember they were crying we were crying it was a really really hard decision to make and we know things are different there now I mean we obviously we've kept those friends we've been back the boys have been back and many many people say that actually what had happened to us was a wake-up call for the community there and things are radically different now and an awful lot better but it did teach me about how we as Christians viewed each other and treated each other, perhaps in the most extreme way. But having been to ecumenical chaplaincies, having valued people of all different faiths and none, made both of us quite clear that we never wanted to be involved in a situation where we undermined other people's faiths or where we were rude or offhand about other denominations or other faiths. It's an easiest thing to do to undermine somebody's faith, to, to attack them. Um, but it's not godly. So what it did for us was to redouble our, our efforts to ensure people didn't experience that. We experienced discrimination within our own country. I'd seen it in Glasgow, obviously seen it in Northern Ireland, but to experience it firsthand, how it makes you feel when you walk into the community shop and someone puts their basket down and walks out because you've walked in, when they when they turn away from you and walk away from you purely because of your denomination, that the sense of injustice of that, but also the pain of it. And so we made a commitment then that, that we wouldn't campaign about it, we wouldn't set up a rights campaign, that we just do it gently with love and understanding and fear and misunderstanding sits behind most of this. So if you're willing to be patient with people and listen to what they're say and their questions and the misunderstandings they have and are willing to hear that out... Our experience has been that you can make a huge difference with people. So what happened after Adam and Cathy left the Isle of Harris? What are their connections with the Isle of Man and with Wally Abbey in Lancashire? And why does Adam wear a clerical collar these days? For all the answers, listen to part two of Cathy and Reverend Adam Thomas's story when I'm at your service at this time next Sunday morning. And now it's notice board time. 
This Tuesday, August the 15th, Ballafesson Methodist Chapel Tots Group are having an all-age summer fun afternoon with puppets, crafts, bouncy castle and refreshments. That's on Tuesday between 2 and 4pm. On Wednesday evening, Shenanikin's Folk Group, led by Andrew Holmes, will be in concert in St Thomas's Church. That's just off the promenade here in Douglas. The concert starts at a quarter to eight. Admission and light refreshments are free, and there's a chance to give to a retiring collection if you wish. And don't forget, if you come to the concert, do allow time to look at St Thomas's Flower Tower. It's still the most amazing and cheerful sight. Then, on Thursday the 17th, Cool Methodist Chapel continue their monthly simple lunches of homemade soup, bread and cheese, a pudding and a choice of tea or coffee for just £7. Lunch is served in the Cool Church Hall from noon until 2 o'clock on Thursday with a warm welcome for everyone. And the Cool Hall is very easy to find, close to the junction of Cool Road and Vicarage Road at the top of the Isle of Man Business Park. And on Thursday evening, there's another summer concert at St Catherine's Church in Port Erin, starting at a quarter to eight with refreshments in the church hall afterwards. And the music this week is provided by the Glenfaber Chorale. And while admission is free, a little donation to the collection as you leave will be greatly appreciated. And finally, looking ahead to next weekend, two events next Saturday the 19th. Castletown Methodist Church invite you to their summer fair and cream tea. It's next Saturday morning between 10 and 12 noon and there'll be tea, coffee, cold drinks and scones on offer, plus a raffle and stalls. Admission is just £3 for an adult and £1 per child. And also next Saturday, St Peter's Church in Onken invite you to a fizzy afternoon tea. It starts at two o'clock next Saturday afternoon with musical entertainment from Mrs Wendy McDowell and friends. Tickets are £12.50 from Elaine. You can phone or text to reserve yours 497712. 497712. And that's all that we have time for now. But I'll be back later in our virtual lounge tonight at nine with a mix of easy listening music and your requests and dedications. And I'd love you to join me if you can. And so, till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening. And I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Stay.